Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Hey, Christ Church. I so hope you have your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And keep those open as we look today at this text. It's pretty powerful. Uh, for the past few weeks, we've been looking at this letter that Peter wrote to a group of discouraged believers who are being persecuted for their faith. And although you and I are not being persecuted for our faith currently, the, the situations that we're facing are challenging our faith. And the letter that Peter wrote to these early believers is a letter that really speaks to each one of us in the days in which we live. You see, in week one, we talked about the fact that our circumstances matter, but they won't matter for long. Because of the work that Jesus Christ has done, even our worst days and our worst nightmares will be erased by his good deliverance of everything he's ever promised. Last week, Michael talked to us about why should we pursue holiness? Because Paul, or Peter rather, shows us that we walk in a better way, we await a better hope, and we worship a better God. That in our patience and in our willingness to withhold off the world and to hold on to our hope, we receive so much more in holiness is our choice to live for that better thing than we currently live for. You see, to live a Christian life is not just about behavior, although it includes behavior. It's far more transformative than that. And what transforms us? What reshapes our identity and gives us not only a purpose, but a place and ultimately a peace? This is what we're going to look at in this text in particular in 1 Peter 2. You see, we are called into something bigger than us. Let's read verses four and five. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. What does it mean to be a Christ follower in any day, especially in the day in which we live? I want you to understand that you are being fitted into a spiritual house. Peter's terminology is interesting. In fact, it's quite interesting when we think about what a spiritual house might mean. Because a spiritual house is a place where God reigns, where God resides. You see, this whole concept of the presence of God is paramount through Scripture. When I think of the presence of God in his house, I always think of imagery. I think of, you know, that seat or that chair in the family room. You know, that chair that's yours, unofficially informally, but it actually is yours. The cushion is shaped to you and nobody else. One time I remember walking into our family room and I noticed that Heather was in my chair and I was silly enough to have said to her, hey, you're sitting in my chair. And she looked at me with those pretty blue eyes and she said, your chair, I don't see your name on it. And I said, stand up a second, I'll show you. And I reached down and I tilted the chair back and I pointed at the label and it said, lazy boy. And I won the argument. I'm going to wait about 30 seconds for the laughter to subside. Okay, that should be long enough. When you think about God getting the preeminent space in your space, we're actually talking about where hope is most found. Because hope is dedicated on who God is rather than on who we are or what we have or what we don't have or what we dream of or what we fear. The presence of God is such a huge issue in this entire text. In fact, in this entire letter. The presence of God is such a prominent theme in scripture. It goes all the way back to the beginning that God created us for his presence. 
and he created or he gave himself to us that we might enjoy and be enriched by his presence. All the way back in the the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God beautifully, daily. They were in great relationship with him. They were close. They were one. There was no division. There was no fear. There was no anger. There was no sin because there was love and there was obedience and there was trust. And then the human race threw away the one thing they were created for. They rejected the presence of God. And when we broke away from our relationship with God in our rebellion, we actually broke ourselves and we broke ourselves significantly. And a just, a just God would have walked away saying, you now have what you wanted away from me, go. But he doesn't. God does the opposite of that. Yes, he's a just God, but he's also a loving God. And God began to pursue each and every one of us with more of his presence, not less. He restored to us what we threw away for garbage and for lies. And he gave us the best of who he was. God decided not to leave us in our condition that we asked for. He tried to restore and work diligently to restore us to the one thing that he created us for. And you can see if you follow through the Old Testament story, and I hope you would, you can see how God continually draws nearer and nearer and nearer to restore the presence that we threw away. You can go all the way back to conversations he has with Noah and Abraham and Moses, where he speaks to them. He went to Jacob. There was a stairway to heaven that came down and showed Jacob that he was interacting in his world, providing angels up and down to show that that this was a God who pursued his presence with all of us. There was a pillar of fire and cloud that led the Israelites into the promised land and would reside in that mobile home that God created of worship called the tabernacle where his Shekinah glory would place itself in the center. It's beautiful imagery over and over and over of God drawing close to people. And then God allowed Solomon to build a temple where his glory would reside, where he would sit at the mercy seat his presence available to all of us. You see, the glory of God, the power of God and the presence of God is not something we should throw away for garbage and lies. It's actually something we should hold on to and give everything up for that in and of itself. And so you have a moment even when Moses says to God on the mountain, I wanna see your glory. And God says, I can't show you it. It would destroy you. And then when Jesus died on the cross and the thick curtain that kept the people out of the the presence of God, out of the Holy of Holies. It was tore in two and God was announcing to the world that the presence that existed in the garden now exists in each one of us. That the sacrifice that Jesus paid. You see, this presence of God is depicted in the presence of Jesus. In John chapter one, the word became flesh and dwelt. Many of you have heard this before, but if you haven't, let me show you. That word actually means tabernacled this holy place where God's presence was kept and was held for us. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Where once the glory of God would destroy us, now the glory of God appears in this gentle, meek man with great power and great authority and great holiness and great presence, Jesus. And because of the work of Jesus, because of the work of being cleansed by his blood and by buying into the hope of the resurrection that Jesus brings all of us. The glory of God, the Holy Spirit resides in each one of us. 
This is something that the Old Testament uh, heroes, they never could have imagined because they lived in fear of crossing the presence of God and dying in their sins, that God came down and brought everything together in the blood of Jesus Christ, cleansing us of our sins so that the glory of God and his presence could be ours. What does this actually mean to us? It means that the glory of God is in you. The Holy Spirit, the abiding presence, God's Holy Spirit is in all believers who have received this gift. You see, there's not a sin in your past that can't be cleansed. There's not a wound that can't be healed. There's not a bad habit that can't be broken. And there's not a fear that Jesus is not greater than. All of this because of the presence of God being restored in each of us by faith. And you and I are part of something bigger than ourselves. That we are living stones being built into this holy place that God resides. And we are one of many. And all of us are necessary. It's not just one stone, but all of us are fitted together by the presence of the Holy Spirit for something so much bigger than we ever imagined. So I want you to think through that with me. We are called into something bigger than we ever imagined. We're called into the presence of God, and then we're called together to work towards something that began with Jesus and continues to be built, the kingdom of heaven here on earth, to be fulfilled completely when Jesus returns. We're also called for service. Look with me at the remainder of verse five. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Interesting. You see, in verse five, Peter shows them what they're called to do to serve. But I want us to, to in just a moment, we're gonna jump down to verse nine because I wanna show you in that, that there is a way we see ourselves. Our identity is not just to be priest. But what kind of priests we are is all found as Peter begins to unwrap the beauty of God's presence, blessing us for service. But please note this before we proceed, that any work that you and I do for the kingdom only comes to the work that Jesus Christ did. Any value we would ever bring is not because of what we brought. It's because it builds on what Jesus began and will find in completeness in all of us. Hebrews chapter 13 the author writes this, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that openly profess his name and do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Jesus is the priest who has empowered all of us into the priesthood by the giving of his spirit, the great comforter, the counselor, the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us. In other words, Every time you and I confess Jesus in any fashion, whether it's through instruction or counseling or encouragement or sharing our faith or inviting someone to join us in the kingdom of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, every time we do that, we are doing the priestly role that the Holy Spirit has given us, empowered by the work of Jesus. <clears throat> this value of our new nature and our identity is now found in verse nine. Look at it with me. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. But notice verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We have been called into the mercy, giving, loving, and serving ministry of Jesus Christ. 
He says we are a chosen people. <clears throat> and I don't want to spend long on this today. I just want to highlight a few things. Notice that there's a difference between being a choice people and being a chosen people. Because I think we can see this falsely if we don't pay attention. A chosen people is given the opportunity by an outside source. Someone chose you. Someone chose me. And because of that, we can be a part of it. Not because of anything we've done, but because we've been granted the offer to be a part of this. A choice people are normally chosen because of what they've accomplished. But let there be no mistake in the hearing of this message that we have been chosen. We are not choice. That doesn't mean you're worthless. That just means we bring nothing that God needs, yet he chose us anyway. And because he chose us, we choose him. And we enter in to being his people. Not our people, not our designs, but we become a part of his people. We've been chosen for a purpose. And that purpose is not to be his slave. That purpose is to be his child. The, re- the restoration of his presence in our daily lives. Walking with him, enjoying him as he walks with us and enjoys us. Then Peter says, we're a royal priesthood. Took me a long time to figure this out, but a royal priesthood is oxymoronic. In other words, two terms that don't go together. Have you noticed that royals don't serve? Royals are served. And if you go through the history of mankind, if you have a royal title or a royal position, you don't do anything. It's done for you. And it's done the way you want it done. And people are doing it all around you, but you don't do any of it. Yet we're called a royal priesthood. And we're going to be the opposite of that. You see, we royals don't serve, but we do. Yet we're royal because we're adopted into the king's household, into his kingdom. We are his chosen people. But let me take that a step further. If you would go into the temple, the, the royal priest, the high priest, would serve the people by actually turning his back to them. And he would represent the people by facing God. He would represent us to God. But what Jesus did was he flipped the script for us. As the royal priesthood, we now, we don't turn our back on God. Don't go that far. That's a mistake. But we actually are now representing God to the people. We get to go out as his priest, representing the mercy and goodness of our father to a world that so much today needs to know that God is not angry. God is not out there smiting. God is offering grace and mercy and love and truth. You see, a priest would work with the sick and the broken and the hurting and the poor. He would offer sympathy and mercy. And Peter's inviting you and I into that as well. This is a work, not a title. In God's kingdom, the royal priest gives his life up for the people. We're also a holy nation. I won't spend a great deal of time on this, although it's significant. My understanding is the word nation is actually the word ethnos, which we get the word ethnic. What Peter is inviting us into is not just a certain kind of people, a color of people, a race of people. He's inviting us into this multi-ethnic kingdom. And he would have been writing to to Jews and to Gentiles and to Greeks and to Romans and to Africans. He would have been inviting all colors and shapes into this kingdom, inviting all of us to have a role in serving. See, becoming a Christian is not like joining a club. It's actually entering into a new culture where we're not divided any longer by male or female or Jew or Gentile or any other division that mankind wants to put out there. We are brought together by the blood of Jesus and all of us are fitted by the Holy Spirit as a building block into this great kingdom that Jesus began. 
And lastly, Peter says we are God's special treasure. Unfortunately, most translations don't handle this well, I'm told. In my research, I found this in several places. He actually says we are a people treasured by God. God did not grab us because he felt sorry for us. We weren't this uh, thing to be pitied. He actually, love compelled him to reach out to us, to bring his presence back to us when his presence is what we first rejected. Yet he brings his presence to us because he treasures us. It is his joy for us to choose him after he's chosen us. You and I are not just sinners saved by grace, although we are, but we are sinners loved by God. And that's where his grace is most felt. You are God's inheritance. So why 2 Corinthians chapter six says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Actually, that can also be translated, they will be my possession, my inheritance. Everything God did from his rejection by Adam and Eve in the garden has been to regain what he values most the lives and souls of you and I. You see, God made us who we are so we could make known who he is to people who don't know who he is. It's so simple. That we are a nation, a people, a priesthood, a kingdom, all to the glory of our father, not as punishment, but that we might share the riches and goodness of everything he's given us. So we've been called into something bigger than us and we've been called to serve that thing that's bigger than us. My last point is this, where do we get the power to do this? Where do we receive it? Look with me again at verse four. As you come to him, the living stone, you and I have to come to him. And I don't just mean one time, one historic moment where we came and said, help me. No, we come to him daily, all of the time as the living stone. And then in verse six, quoting several passages from our Old Testament prophecies. For in scripture, it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a a chosen and precious cornerstone. Notice that the terminology is very similar to what Peter said we are. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Destined, the word presence, remember? That God has been designed from the the fall in the garden of Eden and the rejection of his presence to bring his presence back to us in such a powerful, loving way that we'd be overwhelmed by his love and mercy and receive it. And he paid the cost of justice by his own blood. So what are we learning here? Peter is saying that if Jesus is not the foundation on which we're building our lives. Everything we're using to build this life will be left behind and it will crumble. That the things we hold onto for our security cannot sustain the weight. Peter uses this beautiful imagery of a a cornerstone which is chiseled and it's perfect and it's set in the right dimensions and it's stationed so that everything, it carries the weight of the entire structure. Jesus has to be the cornerstone of everything we do and everything we become. Our identity is only found solidly on Jesus. Everything else can be taken from us in a blink of an eye. And we're seeing that today. And many of us, if we're honest, are fearing that some of the idols that we really thought we had control of when taken from us had more control over us than we ever hoped. You see, here's what I wanna say is don't mistake the functionality of belief with the foundation of your belief. 
You see, you can believe in things that get you through the night. You can believe in things that give you a good night's rest or give you hope that there's gonna be a better tomorrow, that this is all gonna fix itself. And the truth is, don't, don't mistake functionality of belief. Yes, understanding what the scriptures teach will help your children become better people. It might bring peace into your home. It might give you a good night's rest or a sense of calm. At the end of the day, when our idols are toppled, we really find out what our faith is in. And we need to restore our faith or move our faith from what it's in and on to the, to the foundational cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. This is Peter's whole admonition in these first two chapters is to begin to live on the foundation of Christ. It's important. Have you ever noticed in the last book of the Bible, it's called the Revelation. And it's a series of revelations that God gave John, who was one of uh, Peter's contemporaries as a disciple. And what's interesting is when the new heaven and earth is formed at the end of this vision, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. And it's, it's described in beautiful stones and dimensions that are symbolically powerful and giving us a vision of what God's gonna do. But I want you to notice that in the great holy city that comes to earth, there is no temple. But the, but the holy city in Jerusalem had the temple of Solomon. That beautiful temple, when destroyed, they mourned. But there's no temple in the new Jerusalem. Why? Because God does no longer need a building to hold his glory and protect us from it. His glory will be everywhere. There'll be no special place because his presence will be restored like the garden of God that we called Eden all the way back in the beginning. It's all about presence. It's about opening ourselves up to saying, I need nothing in this world except Jesus, his truth, his love, his grace, his compassion, his example. And I'll build my life on his words. I'll build my life on his scriptures. I'll build my life on my faith in Jesus. And then all these other things that the world offers us are gonna be found to be so insignificant compared to what we already have. There is nothing that you can buy that will replace what Jesus bought for you, himself and your soul. See, Jesus has to become so precious to us that everything else is expendable. So just a series of questions, and I, I want you to hear my heart. These are not to make you feel bad. They're to challenge ourselves. When you look at your feet, are they established on the foundation of the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done? Or are they set on something that will not last? Is Jesus the foundational support of your life or is he an option available to you? Are words of Jesus your daily sustenance or is it an oracle that you can appear in times of need to go seek wisdom from? Is your identity redefined by him or by other sources? You see, I wanna ask you some real deep questions because I think it's time for all of us to, to not only think I should set my feet on the foundation of Jesus Christ, but how might I do that? Do you believe that Jesus is God's son sent to earth to be your savior and Lord? Do you find him worthy of your love and your love unworthy? Do, do, you, do you feel this movement of the spirit on you that is simply saying, I need to get serious about my faith because I do believe Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. Have you shared that confession with anyone in a public manner? Have you told your loved ones that you believe he is who he said he is? Are you willing to stand up even to the face of mockery and persecution like Peter's audience would to say, I do believe Jesus is. No matter what anybody else around me says, I am confessing he is the son of the living God and my savior and king. 
Have you asked Jesus for forgiveness of your rebellion and professed your desire to change the direction of your mind, your heart, and your actions to obey and honor him? And have you been baptized by immersion into water to surrender to the death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus offers each one of us? Whatever one of these steps you've not taken, that's your next necessary step, is to give yourself to death so that you can walk in newness of life. And no matter where you are on this, there's no judgment. There's only an opportunity. Come join us in this journey of following him. Whatever your next step is, will you take it? Looking online with us, you can simply go to the prayer tab and you can hit the prayer tab and one of our pastors will be waiting for you there. And you might share with them, I need to take this next step or I need some information about what to do next. Could I talk to somebody? Could we have a phone conversation? Could we connect? Please don't let this moment pass that you don't step out and take your next step of faith. The foundation that Jesus offers us is the only thing that's gonna last when this world is over. And the kingdom that we're being built into and that we're building is powerful. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.